Originality. You. <laughs> Welcome to Autographs. My name is Nick Singh, and just know originality is on the horizon. Let's go. Check one, check one. Okay, we are live. What's cooking? Good looking. This is Nick Sang. Welcome back to Autographs. If you're new here, hello there and welcome. If you've been kicking it for a minute, y'all are in for a treat today. I don't know how many ballers I have in the audience or previous ballers like me. Uh, we're all ballers in some context, I guess. But anyways, uh, if you grew up hooping, um, you're going to like today's episode. I got a chance to connect with Michael Jordan's agent, uh, which felt incredibly timely, actually, because if you've been keeping up with Netflix here in Canada and ESPN there in the States, ESPN has just dropped, in my opinion, one of the sickest documentaries to ever be released. It's a 10-part docuseries on Michael Jordan's final year as a Chicago Bill, and I can tell you that that was one of the most exhilarating and exciting pieces of content and inspirational. Man, the whole thing, the amount of notes that I took from it was just completely asinine, and on top of that, it was entertaining, so I highly encourage you watch it. And anyways, um, on today's show, we have David Falk. And David David Falk was Michael Jordan's sports agent at the time. And to give you some ideas to who David Falk is, he was considered actually, I don't think he considers himself this, but a lot of people called him the second most influential person in the NBA when he was managing Michael Jordan because there was the commissioner, David Stern, and then David Falk, who didn't even work for the NBA, yet some people considered him the second most powerful person. And it was because of his incredible tenure to or maybe not tenure, but skill, to negotiate deals for his clients. He literally changed the entire deal structure of the NBA, negotiating, I think it was $400 million worth of deals in six days for his free agents. Uh, that's a lot of money, especially uh, several years ago when $400 million was a lot more than what, it were, what it's worth now. It's still worth a ton now. But regardless, um, he is an all-around badass. And I'm telling you, man, this guy cuts it to people straight. I think that the thing that impressed me most about David was less about his credentials and the fact that he's worked with Jordan and he has just an incredibly eclectic career filled with a lot of stories and lessons. Um, but it was his attention to detail on the small things that made people valuable. And, you know, here's a guy that has experienced an immense amount of success in his life and has been around arguably one of the greatest athletes, not even arguably one of the greatest athletes to have ever lived, as well as a handful of others, because he's managed more than just Jordan. And, um, you know, he walks away from it all with an incredibly humble heart, just being incredibly thankful to people like Jordan for making his life so rich and so beautiful and so full. And, um, he values things like genuinity, kindness, laughter, friendship, loyalty, brevity, <laughs> and respect. And I could go on, but I can tell you that speaking with David and even doing research before this chat, um, I was really reminded that there's universal things that really transcend culture. You can go to any part in the world and they're accepted as good. And... um those are the things that I think David cares about. And I think we all, myself included, ought to kind of put down the who's more important gavel every now and again and just get back to really being a good human. Um, David reminded me single-handedly as to how important that is. So, David, thanks for being on. 
Uh, I hope that you all enjoyed this show. It was taken in quarantine fashion on Zoom. I'll be releasing the video soon. And um, thanks for being here. All right, I'm out. This is Nick Sang. You're listening to Autographs. Peace. All right, we should be recording. Um, David, I'm going to do that one more time. How are you keeping? It's been a it's been a crazy time, man. We had Kobe, Corona this year. A lot of strange stuff happening in the world. How are you been keeping? You know, I think that, uh, you know, adversity challenges you to be creative and to find, you know, solutions to problems, to grief. Um, you don't wish those things to happen, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel very fortunate that I'm healthy, um, my family's healthy, um, and uh, while things can be better, you know, they could be a lot worse, so I'm very Good thankful. man. Good man. Something tells me this isn't your first rodeo, man, so kudos. Um, anyways, I wanted to, I wanted to start things off by saying thanks for being willing to jump on the call. Um, I know you've been doing a little bit of a circuit. I've been keeping up with your interviews, and uh, I spent a lot of time. Um, with some really interesting folks in my life. And that process has really led to me being able to see that these great acts are really nothing without the other great acts surrounding them. And uh, I have a deep sense of just appreciation, man, for everything you've done. Michael Jordan has touched my life. He's changed my life. And I think that you had a big role in that. So thank you, man. He's changed my life as well. So I'm extremely thankful to him for his friendship loyalty uh, for you know helping me really take accelerate my career to a different level that it might have ever been without it yeah absolutely man just two greats um you know what i wanted to start things right there um which is i've been doing a lot of watching and a lot of listening to a lot of the stuff that you've put out and a lot of the stuff that you're currently putting out and i figured a a, a neat place to start it something that struck home with me was um how great of a friend you thought Michael was. Um, and I'd be curious as to what you believe made him a really great friend. Well, I think, I think that he is an extremely loyal person um, to the people he cares about. And obviously when you reach the level of notoriety that he has, um, you know, you have to have a sort of an inner circle and an outer circle. And, you know, I feel for many years to been privileged uh, we sort of grew up together in the business. He was 21, I was 33. Uh, he was young back then in 1984 for an NBA player, and I was certainly young for a lawyer, a- agent on my way up. Um, and you know, I think if you take it back to the beginning, he comes from an amazing family. His parents, James and Dolores, were, were tremendous people. Uh, they instilled very strong character um, traits in him. Uh, when you watch the doc, you realize that uh, he got into a little trouble, I guess, in the ninth grade. They didn't let him play sports until he sort of cleaned up his act. Um, many parents today of athletes think that their child could do no wrong. They're the best. Michael's parents constantly prodded him and cajoled him to improve himself as a person. Um, guy is amazing. He's got great penmanship. He's gracious. He's got great manners. He's charming. Um, and I think that all starts with your family. Um, yeah. And and I think what 
in, in, the, in the big picture, what you see on the dock, is what made him special wasn't simply his amazing athletic gifts, because there's been a lot of amazing athletes in the NBA. I know in my own career, you could think of, I mean, Dennis Rodman in his own way was an amazing athlete. Very uh, much so. Dominique Wilkins, Isaiah Thomas. These guys are freaks of nature. Sorry? I said these guys are freaks of nature. Absolutely. Exactly. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You go through tons of people. What separated Michael wasn't just simply his drive. It was his, his mind. He's extremely bright. He has almost an encyclopedic knowledge of players. Um, you know, what he described how he beat Byron Russell off the dribble because he had studied him. He knew that he put his weight forward on his toes. If he did a head and shoulder fake, he could create room. There probably aren't 10 scouts or coaches in the NBA that know that. Um, I can give you many stories of things. And so I think so much of who he was, you see the sizzle, the amazing dunks and the moves and the blocks, but the state was his mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also what enabled him to leave basketball, become an incredibly successful businessman, uh, owning a team, becoming a billionaire. Um, And um, that's who he is. And a lot of that is innate. And a lot of it has to do with the tremendous family background he has. And he took that family background to North Carolina, where he had the opportunity to play for the greatest college coaches of all time, and Dean Smith. And Dean didn't coddle him. He didn't give him the ball and say, do your thing. Played on a team with James Worthy, who was the number one pick in the draft when he was a freshman. He played on a team with Brad Doherty, who was the number one pick in the draft. Two years after he came out, Sam Perkins, who was the fourth pick. Jimmy Black, who played briefly in the pros. And so he learned to socialize, to figure out a way to make his talent mesh with other players on the team. Today, great young players, you know, come out of the AAU system and they are the alpha dog. They're not used to meshing. They're used to being solo, solo acts. And I think the NBA today is much more a solo act than it was 20 years ago for a lot of reasons. Number one, I think there are fewer superstars. Uh, I don't think the players are trained long enough to allow their talents to become virtuosos. Um, like if I asked you if you were building a new home, would you hire an electrician who had three months of experience to wire your house or to do your plumbing? Now, they're really talented, but they're not experienced. And yeah. I, think, I think the system today in America doesn't allow for the growth of the player's talent like it does in Europe, you know, where they're pros at 14. Um, and they come to America with amazing skills and dribbling and shooting and passing things that have sort of become lost arts in, uh, on our side of the pond. It's an, it's an incredible point, man. Um, I mentioned this to you on emails. I grew up playing ball um, and I got the Michael Jordan memorabilia in the back that my pops won at a golf show. I'm going to show you that after because I think it's a one of a kind. I'm sure you'd like it. Um, but, you know, you said some really interesting stuff there. And I, I, I finished up the documentary yesterday because in Canada, it premieres a day later than everything. Thank you, Canada, for that. But um, there was a writer, and um, he wrote Rare Air, and he said something I thought was really, really... He also helped me write The Ball Truth. 
Yeah, which is, by the way, the time between you me, me and you t- connecting and then me and you chatting now, usually I try to read whoever I have on the, uh, on the phone's book, but I, I did pick it up. <laughs> and uh, I'm not through it yet, but it was incredible so far. Now, that being said, um, he said something really fascinating, and I thought it was just so insightful, which is why you got to have folks who are philosophical and thoughtful like you and this gentleman surrounding big acts to really look in and say, this is what the magic is. And the magic wasn't his athleticism alone. But this gentleman said something incredible, and I wanted to just stress test to see if you think the same thing. And he said it was Michael's ability to remain present. Do you, do you agree with that? Is that like, because it gave me shivers almost saying that. So I'm a golfer. Michael said I'm not a very good golfer, but I'm a man. <laughs> I feel like anybody golfing with Michael, it's just uh, it's an instant mistake, man. So in golf, in golf, which I think is maybe the most difficult sport psychologically, except maybe a marathon. You know, you're playing four days under tremendous pressure. You know, you may have a bad lie, bad weather, bad winds, and you're going to hit some bad shots. And Dr. Bob Rotello is one of the foremost golf psychologists, um, you know, always tells you stay in the present. Don't worry about the shot you missed. You have another shot coming up. Um, First of all, Mark Vansell, covered Michael early, very early in his career. He's a very bright man. And I think knows Michael dramatically better than almost any other media person, except maybe Wilbon and Ahmad. Those three people were insiders. The rest of them, and they're all friends of mine. I love Dave Aldridge, love Jay Adande. I'm very fond of Andrea Kramer. Um, but those people really didn't know Michael up close and personal. They knew him as reporters. Vansel, Ahmad is one of Michael's best friends, and, and Wilbon, they had really interesting insights. So I agree with Mark's description. I wouldn't necessarily use a golf analogy, but I think it describes. Wow. I think Michael had the ability to have what I would call controlled intensity. He knew when to bring it. You know, he wasn't like that all the time. When, you, when you're with him off the court, He's extremely low-key and humble, but on the court, when he presses that button and goes to work, and I think what that brings out, not just for Michael Jordan, the most interesting thing to me about the, well, there are a lot of interesting things, but perhaps one of the most interesting things about the doc was that the vast majority of fans, almost all fans, see an athlete on the field or on the court performing. In basketball, they're not wearing a lot of equipment. In football, they're wearing a helmet. You know, you might not see them in hockey. They may be wearing a helmet. And so your perception of the athlete is what he's doing on the court or on the field. Now, that's not necessarily what his personality is 90, 98% of the day when he's not on the basketball court for 48 minutes. And so I like to use the analogy of Patrick Ewing. When Patrick played, he was intense. He was a warrior. And people in New York thought he was a thug. If you ask me to describe Patrick Ewing, I would say he's a teddy bear. He's one of the sweetest, most polite, nicest people of all time. But when he goes to work and he puts his uniform on, no one's paying him to be a teddy bear. They're paying him to be a warrior. Um, When I go to work and I put my suit on, Today, I'm wearing my Air Jordan, you know, drive. I, I wish I had it. So I could have a workout when we're done. Um, 
when I go to work, I bring a certain level of intensity. That's what my clients demand. That's what their success demands. Um, I'm not here to win a comedy contest or, you know, um, to entertain people. I'm, I'm there to go to work. And Michael, I think, had the greatest ability, perhaps, of anyone I've seen to manage that intensity. And so I think that's what Mark meant by being in the present. He understood what it took at any given moment. And one of the most dramatic scenes in the doc was in the, in the last year, in the last game, you know, they're down and Michael makes the jump shot. It comes to the other end. And like, like someone had earplugs telling them, Michael, go into the scene where Carl Malone can't see you and strip the ball. He did that on his own because he's so intellectually superior um, that he knew Malone would be able to sense where he was in a certain, he was sort of in his blind spot, like you're driving and you have a blind spot in your right corner and you strip the ball. Like that's what it took. The game before when he had food poisoning, I was at that, I was at all those games. After that game, I asked the doctors how he was doing because I was, they wouldn't let me get down to the locker room immediately. Um, and they told me they recommended IVs, but he decided to take Gatorade. <laughs> That's all he took was Gatorade. And he came out of the locker room and I was walking behind him and sort of like if you saw Pippen holding him after the game, he was so weak that every few steps he would sort of stumble. He could barely walk, but he was able to, dial into some magical place in his brain and summon the strength and the will to score 38 points um, with food poison. And I thought that was, um, that that's who he is. Freaking tremendous, man. Just through and through. Um, <laughs> I, and, and just out of an effort of time, I'll keep going. Um, you know, one of the things, cause I'm, um, to give you some context, I'm 25. So I grew up in, in the Kobe era and it wasn't until this documentary, and this is my first time saying it publicly, and I swear I'm not just saying it to scratch your back, man. Jordan is number one of all time. And I, I, I swallow my old, my old reservations trying to fight for good old Kobe. But, um, but, but, but these guys are amazing athletes. And one of the things that I was so impressed by was uh, I, I grew up not obviously watching Jordan. I grew up watching Kobe, and I didn't realize how kind of a person Jordan was. Uh, and, and, and how humble he was. And it was just, that was one of my biggest takeaways from the doc. And, um, I'm curious, man. I, I, I heard this story once of, uh, of somebody that hopefully one day be on the show of Tony Robbins when he had a chance to sit down with, um, uh, Gorbachev right after the cold war had ended. And then he started kind of trying to understand why did the cold war end? he tells the story publicly, why did the Cold War end? Why did the Cold War end? And Gorbachev told him the kind of politically correct answer. But Tony had a feeling that there was something different. And then eventually Gorbachev started laughing. He goes, oh, my gosh, Tony, I know the exact moment I changed my mind. And it was when um, it was when the American president, his name is blanking in my head right now, just they were fighting back and forth. They're bickering. And then all of a sudden he just gets up from his seat. The American president walks away, comes back and introduces himself. He goes, hi, I'm John. And then Gorbachev starts laughing and he goes, you just, you have to like the guy. And then that was the micro moment that eventually led them to finding peace. And I'm curious, the reason why I say that story is because what was the micro moment for you, if you've never reflected on it, maybe you have, of where you knew Michael Jordan was going to be the best player of all time, that this guy was really great. 
Well, I've said this in a lot of these postdoc interviews. I had sort of three coming attractions. The first, um, the first was the University of Maryland, Michael's last year in college. Uh, I live in Maryland. Um, I'm not a Maryland fan, but I'm very friendly with the coach, Gary Williams, at the time. I went to the game to, to see his great game, Carolina, Maryland, Lenny Bias against Michael Jordan. And by a fluke, I bumped into James Worthy's dad and Kenny Smith's dad. We all sat together. Um, James, James was a client. And um, with about 20 seconds left in the game, there was a turnover at the Maryland and the ball scores loose. Michael picks it up at half court, looks up at the score, score clock. It's about seven seconds left in the game. And he, he cuffs the ball in his crook of his right wrist and he throws down a cuff dunk. Other than Dr. J, I'd never seen anybody even think about doing something like that. And we just sitting there, Mr. Worthy and I, and look at each other like, did he just do that? Uh, that, was, that was the first coming. The second was the Olympics. He came to the Olympics and he dominated the Olympics against, not against college players from Russia or Argentina or Spain, but against professionals who were 30 years old, grown men, physically strong. Um, the European announcers dubbed him rubber man uh, because they'd never seen people move his body so in such an athletic way. But the real, the real clincher, the Olympics end, I go down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, visit with Michael and his parents to present my marketing plan for him. And at the end of the meeting, he wants to go practice in the practice gym in Carolina, Woolen Gym. And he's playing against his idol, Walter Davis, James Worthy, Dudley Bradley, the Secretary of Defense, Michael O'Corn, the sixth pick in the draft in 80. You know, a ton of pros, Carolina pros. And if you didn't know who anyone was, you're a Kobe fan. I'll give you a Kobe analogy. You would have thought it was Kobe Bryant playing against a bunch of ninth graders from the CYO. Like he just dominated the game. And I was just stupefied. And it didn't mean that I thought he could be the greatest player of all time. It just meant that at North Carolina, he had certain limitations within the fabric of the team concept. Dean was a very, very disciplined coach. And he probably, in his freshman year, most experts would say Worthy was the best player. On the dock, Worthy was very humble, said he was the best player for two weeks. But Worthy was the number one pick in the draft and the MVP of the NCAA tournament. And in, North, in the state of North Carolina, probably from the eighth grade on, James Worthy was the man. And so um, that was the time I realized that this guy's not simply the number three pick in the draft. He's going to be special. How special is going to become only, only time would show. Wow. The wealth of stories here, man, is just incredible. And I, I just have one last question. And then we'll wrap and then I'll show you this picture behind me. I'll give you a little close up. Um, <laughs> my dad actually wanted golfing to give you some context. So there you go. Um, this question is more attributed to you because I think you lived a really eclectic life. I was going to ask you about Thompson and the role he played in your life, but you've documented that a ton of different times, that incredible story of how he really changed the way that you think about others. But I'm going to try to take that question and just kind of, Amplified a little bit, which is um, I'll just give you a 
three-second soundbite. Yeah, please, yeah, I would love that. I've said this many times, and I say it, you know, both humbly and proudly. John Thompson has had a bigger impact on my life than any man I've ever met, including my own father. I mean, the single biggest influence in my life was my mother, uh, Pearl Falk, who's a teacher. She's my life's mentor. But as a male role figure, um, someone who's taught me lessons I don't think I could have learned from anyone else, lessons I might not have accepted from anyone else. John has been an amazing friend, a mentor, um, you know, just a very, very incredibly influential, um, motivational person in my life. That's beautiful. And um, anybody listening, I'd encourage you folks to go look at some of the other interviews um, David's done because he has a very incredible story that he tells about um, about Thompson and when he called him into his office and really changed his his worldview. And 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 to wrap it up, David, the question I'd like to ask you is, um, you know, I'm 25. I mentioned that before. Um, you're seeing a, and this is a bigger question that you don't normally get, and that's why I want to ask it to you. I think that when you surround yourself with greatness in life as you have, um, it rubs off on you quite naturally and you start to see things that other people don't see. And um, I would like to know, what, what do you really feel is missing from today's youth? Because the majority of people that listen to this show are between 18 to 35. They're young, they're starting their careers, they're in the early parts, they're kind of where you were when you signed Michael. And, 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 and I'd be curious to know if you've ever, uh, if you've ever reflected on that. Sure. I, I reflected on it often. So I'll, I'll give you a, a microcosm answer. So I'll use, I'll use sports as an analogy. Sure. And, and by the way, sorry, you have to go here in four minutes, right? I'm just being mindful of the time. So, um, Michael played two professional sports, basketball and baseball. When he came into the league, he wanted to earn his way in. He wanted to establish himself. He didn't want people to say, wow, you're the national player of the year. You know, you're going to be the man. He never, he never had that attitude. He wanted to earn it the hard way, you know, through his body of work. When he went to major league, when he went to baseball, we had opportunities to put him on a major league roster his first year, his first day because of who he was. And he didn't want to be with some people with dub like a show pony, um, you know, a celebrity, you know, playing in a celebrity game. He wanted to get out in the batting cage till his hands bled, learn how to hit um, and earn it. I think today there's a certain desire for instant gratification because we live in an instant age, an age of instant information. Um, when I was a kid, my mom was a linguist. She spoke eight languages. She was an interpreter uh, in World War II. And if we would ask her what a word meant, she would say, look it up in the dictionary. Today, if you don't know what a word means, you look it up on Google, three seconds, you know. And the sort of the act of looking it up gave you a certain, you, would, you remembered what the word meant because you had to make an effort to find out what it was. And it, I think it's great today that we have Google and all these modern things, but I think there's a certain desire to shortcut some of the things that create longevity, sort of shortcutting building a foundation. And it reminds me of the famous adage, if a man is hungry, don't give him a fish, teach him how to fish. And 
I think if you ask Michael Jordan, what was the most important thing that David ever did for you? He wouldn't say Air Jordan or make him a lot of money. He would say he taught me how to make good business decisions. He taught me the business of professional sports, which something is very flattering to me because I look at myself more as a teacher. So if I was, and I do teach, I'm on college up in Syracuse and I'm on a division of a law school here in Washington. I think teaching is the single most important um, job in the United States. And, and so I think I would say to your listeners, um, your followers, that um, there's no shortcut for success. Uh, there's no easy ways to success. It's gained by hard work, diligence, creativity. <clears throat> and um, you have to build a very strong foundation if you want it to last. I mean, you look at Jordan, brand Jordan is the number one selling shoe for all these years. 1984, it's been 36 years. It's incredible because the foundation of the brand is incredibly strong. Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time. No one else has been able to achieve that level or to achieve that longevity. He's with Gatorade, silent Gatorade, 1991, almost 30 years ago. Sarah Lee, um, he's with Upper Deck. The foundational aspects of his program have stood the test of time because they were built carefully, slowly, um, and that's that would be my advice. There's no, you know, I, my favorite quote, and I probably will butcher it if I try to do it, uh, is Teddy Roosevelt. Um, it is not the critic that counts. It is not the man who points out where the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who knows the great devotions. And who at the worst, if he fails, you know, fails while daring greatly so that his place will never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. It's a hell of a quote, man. I I, I would argue that you probably just made it a lot better after that cool story. So, um, a lot, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, David, do you have 30 seconds for me to show this to you or do you have a heart up? Okay, cool. I really need to. Uh, sure, let's take a look. Sure. So um, I, I, I believe it's one of a kind. I guess you can tell me. So what it is, is, um, no, 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 you're good. You're good. You're good. Take it. All right. So I'm just pulling my camera off here. Um, all right. Check this out. So I, it is a, it's a one of a kind thing where every single one of his years, if you can see that are documented. That's it. Who, who made that? I have no idea. There's no signature on the back. There's nothing. That's cool. But it, it's pretty neat. And hey, David, just thanks for being here, man. I, I, I couldn't ask for more. I really appreciate uh, it. I respect your perspicaciousness. That's, that's, <laughs> All what, right. that's what it takes. Got to go. Take care. Hey, send it to me. Send me. Oh, oh send me I, will. I will. Take care. Bye. And that was it, folks. David Fox.